thought I'd begin tonight with a joke. <laughs> it's a joke about Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. Hard to imagine a joke about them, isn't it? But this is definitely a joke about them. It's a joke I made up. So I'm very proud of it because I never make up jokes. Anyway, you know, they hang out together a lot, as was noticed in your comments this afternoon. Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha seem to go together much of the time. So they were hanging out one day, and they passed a mirror. And Dukkha... Dukkha? <laughs> this is Dukkha, unreliability of microphones. Are we on? Oh, you're turning it down. Maybe that's a good idea. No, they don't like it down. Up, up, up. How's this? Okay. Where was I? You know, it's a lot to keep in mind these days. Okay, so they were hanging out and they happened to walk by a mirror. And Dukkha looked in the mirror and said, Oh my goodness, I'm getting so old. And Anicca said, Don't worry, it'll pass. <laughs> and Anatta said, Just who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> thank you, thank you. I don't think this joke would, you know, go over well in the downtown Fairfax, you know, comedy club, but here in this very rarefied atmosphere, you get the drift. Yeah. So here you are, making friends, you could say, to some degree, with these three companions and and as we practice, they become intimate companions. And this has been happening for you on this retreat, whether you've liked it or not. They've been tapping on your shoulder, whispering in your ear, getting your attention. So that's a good thing. And as we practice, they become much more close. We see them not just in the external world, of course they exist there, but we also see them in the immediacy of our own changing experience. In the changing experiences of the body as you go through the day, the, the moods, the emotions, the thoughts, all of it coming and going. All of it sometimes intense, sometimes difficult, sometimes challenging, sometimes delightful, sometimes easy, sometimes filled with well-being, but all coming and going. In this living, breathing body, inside this heart and mind, which is sometimes quite wacky, as some of you have noticed, so in the in the effort to not take it too personally, I'd like to read something to you written by a, 
a very serious monk named Gunaratana. He says, Somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrinking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, and you never noticed. So we consider this progress, to notice how truly crazy at times, not all the time, but at times how truly crazy this inner experience can seem. So what we are doing here is allowing this intimacy to develop, this moment-to-moment intimacy with anicca, with dukkha, with anatta. Even if we don't think we understand anatta, there's something at work that is beginning to suggest to you that you don't quite exist in the way that you have imagined And so with this, we begin to sense also that perhaps something needs to be let go, that some kind of illusion that you have been living with is beginning to reveal its illusory nature, we could say. And we often experience the loss of our illusions of security and permanence and and all is hunky-dory, we begin to feel that as a loss, as a threat even, or as a series of losses, and we want to resist. We don't even know that we've been holding on to some idea about life until it begins to go. And I'd like to give you an example from my own experience that happened not too long ago, actually, that really caught me by surprise. I went for my physical, my annual physical, and they, you know, do what they do, and they wanted to measure my height. And I said, oh, well, I know how tall I am. (laughs) I'm five foot seven. I've always been five foot seven. I mean, it's just, you know, that's who I am, me, five foot seven. So I got up against the wall, and she said, you're not five foot seven. I said, what do you mean I'm not five foot seven? She said, look, you're only five foot five. (laughs) And I was completely shocked. I thought they, you know, it must be wrong, right? But there it was, staring me in the face, that somehow, without even knowing it, without my permission, (laughs) without my body indicating... It had lost two inches. That's just shocking to me. How does it do that? So I, this is an example for me in my life of this, and it's not life-threatening, you know, to lose. (laughs) I can't really complain, but it's sort of, it's just, it's just like, it went on with no symptoms, no announcements, no anything. I wouldn't still be living with the belief that I was five foot seven and 
if I hadn't been measured. The body has its own journey. And more and more as I age, I see that what's needed is just a surrender to the inevitability of the body's way with me. I'd like to share with you some interesting facts about the body that uh, we may or may not be aware of. Such as, the body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body replaces a new head of hair every two to five years. The body makes a new liver. (laughs) Yeah, still waiting. Well, here's a. This is perfect. Thank you. This replacement process seems to slow down a little bit as we get older. The body makes a new liver, we hope, every six weeks. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every breath we inhale, billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc., 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. So, in other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are in a process of change, appearing and disappearing, all without your knowledge, all without your consent. This is going on. The body has its own journey. Suzuki Roshi, who we seem to quote a lot because he said so many wonderful things, um, one of the things I quote a lot and means more and more to me as I get older um, is something about renunciation because this world of Buddhism, Buddhist practice has monastic lineages. It it has a... um, whole teaching on the value of renunciation, of giving up sensual pleasures, of living with great simplicity, uh, not acquiring, not uh, owning things. So there's this stream of, of a tradition that we, we all hear about. We're not monastics here, but we hear and we, we know monastics and we... we, we help to support them because we value their practice so very much. But in any case, Suzuki Roshi said this thing, which really applies to aging. He said, renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. So in, in some ways we become natural renunciates as we age we see that things that we once took as being, we assumed would always be with us, or things that we absolutely needed for our well-being, or things that defined who we are, 
or things that we relied on to help us feel approved of or loved, they begin to disappear. And I think by the... I, I, I'm going to say this, and I want your feedback. I may not be actually correct, but let me know. I think by the time you are 60, the truth of this begins to dawn on you, that things are beginning to change. Things are beginning to slip away. Who you thought you were is, is kind of disappearing in the fogs of the past. By the time you are 70, this... This change is really living in your own body. I have felt that when I turned 70. Physically, I feel much more, I feel different than I did 10 years ago. By the time you are 80, and I'm only speculating because I'm not there yet, but I think by the time you are 80, you are completely out of denial about this truth of renunciation. (laughs) You know that things are going away or have or perhaps have already gone. Am I correct, you 80-year-olds or more? Yes. yes, okay. So it dawns slowly this renunciation, but but it is this is one of those spiritual opportunities that we are being given to see oh this is changing. I'm, I'm losing the sense of who I have been. And with that, there's a sense of loss, obviously. I'd like to read a poem written by uh, Elizabeth Bishop called One Art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing, f- f- practice losing farther, losing faster. Places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I own, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like like a disaster. I love that poem because you can hear her understanding something about loss. That at first, when we lose, it seems often like a disaster. Oh my God, I lost my credit cards. This is a disaster. My identity is stolen. Oh my God, it's a disaster. Or somebody dies, or somebody moves, or somebody changes their mind, and it feels like a disaster. And then we live on, right? Many of you have survived many disasters. And 
you see, it was not a disaster. Maybe it was difficult, but it wasn't a disaster. So I'd like to ask you now, and we can, we can just explore this a little bit, maybe even play with this. What have you lost in your life? Take a moment just to close your eyes. We'll just be in silence for a minute or so. Just reflect on things you have lost. things in your work life, things in your personal life, people, places. (coughs) Capacities you once had that are no longer as available. Possessions. clothes, things you really love that you no longer have. So we can all come up with quite a list, can't we? And I have a fantasy of someday doing a, a ritual here where we make a list we make a long list of all the things that we've lost and we put that list all together. If we made a, if each of you made a list and we, we, we tied that list together with everybody else's list, how, how, how long would it be? Would it go all the way down to the gate? I think so. How far would it go? Would it go out to the road? Would it go into Fairfax? Who knows? It would be a long list. All the things that humans have, each of us, lost. And it feels very personal when it's us. And yet it is also a very universal and shared experience, that of loss. And so what are some of the common reactions, conventional reactions in the world to loss? Let's just name some. Grief. Grief. Anger. Anger. Anguish. Denial. Denial. Fear. Panic. Panic. Disaster. Yes, all these things are very common reactions. And yet, in our practice, we're called upon to take another look, to see if there's another response. Just as we've been saying over and over, it's not what happens, but how we respond. How, we, how the Dharma can help us find a new response to the difficult challenges of life. And loss is certainly a big one. I think I told the story the other night, I maybe did, uh, of the man who was dying and kept saying to his daughter, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Did I tell that story? Yeah. And that's one response. So like, this is a mistake. This should not be happening. Or um, 
a Tibetan teacher named Shabkar wrote this as a reminder about the truth. He said, though we have provisions for a hundred years, on the threshold of death, we will have to abandon them all. Though we have a wardrobe sufficient to clothe us for a hundred years, on the threshold of death, we will be naked. Though we have in our possession a hundred pieces of gold or silver, silver, on the threshold of death, our hands will be empty. Though we may be surrounded by a hundred relatives and friends, on the threshold of death, we will be alone. That is the way it is. We don't get to take anything with us, not even our dear, dearest ones, nothing. So what does the Dharma have to offer us about loss, about losing? I'd like to share a few stories that show us some other possible responses. One, I know many of you have probably heard this, but it can it's such a good one, and I know it meant a lot to me when I heard it a number of times from my teachers. So one day, Jack Cornfield's teacher was teaching to a group of monks, and he held up a gl- he was talking about impermanence and change, and he held up a glass, and he said, "You see this glass?" And everybody said, yes. He said, to me, this glass is already broken. I have no illusions about its permanence, about it being here forever. But while it is here, I can thoroughly enjoy it. I can be grateful for it. I can appreciate its form, its function, everything about it. But I know that it will one day be broken. That is the way things are. I think I'll have a little sip. <laughs> so how can we apply that to our life? It's, it's a quality of not being surprised when things do change or when things do reveal their unreliability or their impermanent nature. You know this chant that we have done um, somewhere? I know it by heart, so, okay, thanks. Um, It says, all things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth, to be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Now that's a different idea for us as Westerners, to be in harmony with the truth of change. We always want to deny it or resist it. We tend to, at least. So that is why reflection on the truth of change, just as uh, Grove was instructing us this morning, just recognizing the fact of it, letting it in over and over, helps us to be in harmony with it, so we're not so shocked when something does change. There is a Japanese tea ceremony 
Maybe some of you have done such a ceremony in which the bowls that they serve the tea in are very beautiful but very unadorned and they're they're little mini works of art but very simple at the same time. And during the Japanese tea ceremony, they make the tea and they serve the tea and everybody drinks the tea together and it's all done rather slowly. And so there's a great deal of mindfulness in the way that they handle the bowls and the way they serve the bowls. So it's very rare that one of these bowls gets broken, but every now and then a bowl does get broken. And so instead of just tossing it away into the dustbin, if at all possible, they take the four or five parts that the bowl broke into and they put the bowl back together and glue it back together by filling in the cracks with gold. And so they have a cup and they use the cup that has been repaired with gold. And it's meant to be a symbol of the preciousness of revealing the fact that the bowl being vulnerable to change makes it even more precious, makes it worth contemplating, makes it worth uh, taking into one's consciousness. And the gold... uh, sort of announces to the world that this cup is like us, that we too will one day break, but that we can view that fact, we can see that as a a way of calling forth in our own hearts a sense of the sacredness and beauty and, and preciousness of our lives, rather than, oh, well, you know, tossing tossing life away. And often, um, this sense of healing the broken places in our world, we don't think of, you know, repair is not a big feature in our culture anymore. Maybe it used to be a little more when people weren't so wealthy, but now it's very much a replace culture rather than repair the objects in our home or 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 you know treasure them because they're old we tend to toss them and want something new and shiny and unbreakable you know so this idea of repairing with the quality of gold with the quality of the heart that has within it this compassion this love this this caring for things that's part of the teaching of the, the, of the Japanese tea bowl. The uh, songwriter and poet Leonard Cohen has a song where he says, there is a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. So we can also see the cracking of the tea bowl or the cracking of anything is a reminder of, again, our own vulnerability and fragility in this world. But that when there is this allowing of this cracking, 
that something comes into us that could not get in any other way unless we opened in that way. There's a Japanese poem that has a beautiful image in it by Shikibu. It's an image of a ruined house. The moonlight leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. The moonlight leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. The house may be ruined, but it allows the moonlight to to shine through. Now, again, in our culture, that might seem like a foreign notion. Why do you, you know, ruined house, you know, fix it, make it better. But this is an appreciation of how things are, that things sometimes get ruined. But still, there is that quality of, we could call it, the absolute nature of reality or that that sense of the deathless that can still be present even as we fall apart, even as things in the world get ruined. So, so as we experience loss, it opens us, it cracks us, we, we grieve, our heart weeps, we, we may physically just weep and weep and weep. I, I spent practically a whole three-month course early in my practice just weeping. I had no idea what I was even weeping about. And by that time I, had, I was a psychologist, I had a degree in psychology, I thought I'd handled all the past you know, childhood stuff. And I just wept because... I needed to open. It's one way that we open, by feeling that quality of vulnerability that we all carry. So here's a bit of a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. I won't read the whole thing, but and some of you have heard it many times probably, but it so beautifully describes what I'm trying to say. It's a poem called Kindness, where she says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes, sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. This is what we are looking for. It is what we are looking for, this deep love that we can contact and feel in our being as we go about our lives. 
And often we look outside of ourselves, somebody else, please love me. In practice, and that's a fine thing, it's a fine thing, but in practice we also want to cultivate that quality of self-care, self-love, kindness to ourselves, so that we are um, connecting with that quality of heart in a regular way, giving ourselves the nourishment that comes from loving ourselves, being kind to ourselves. So this is the quality that's spoken about in the tradition as compassion. And I want to talk a little bit about... um, compassion and how we practice with it because it can't we can't do this practice without a sense of self-care self-kindness self-compassion you can see for yourself the challenges of opening as you have been doing here on retreat to looking at you know change looking at suffering looking at not self How can we do this without a sense of real, genuine kindness towards ourselves? So in the uh, so in the in the Buddhist tradition, there are two qualities that are spoken about as as sort of the supreme qualities of practice that we need. One is wisdom and one is compassion. They are likened to the two wings of a bird. We need both of those wings in order for our practice to have, uh, uh, for our practice to really operate correctly. Without compassion, wisdom can be dry or conceptual or, or sort of disconnected from the human side of life. And compassion without wisdom can be misguided and sentimental. We can get lost in, you know, in trying to be too, uh, trying to help everybody all the time, sometimes called idiot compassion. <laughs> Just because it, it, we get lost, we get lost without wisdom. So compassion is this quality of heart that brings our practice down into the heart, into the world of relationships. Not only the relationships with our loved ones, with the people that we cherish and live with and, and spend our days with, but brings us into connection with what the Native Americans call all our relations all our relations. So that means all beings that we come in contact with, really. And that is why we give, you know, the, why we work with the precepts here at Spirit Rock, so that people, you know, we say, don't kill anything, protect life, don't harm other beings. Well, that heightens your awareness. So when you're out looking at a spider, you know, you you begin to develop a different kind of relationship with that creature if you think, oh, I'm here to protect him, I'm not here to kill him. It, it, you develop a different relationship. So whether it is a tiny little ant that we encounter in our walking practice or, 
your boss or the person who works at the post office or your dearest old friend, we are asked to come into relationship, a, a compassionate relationship with that being and eventually out to all beings. So in the, in the tradition, different qualities of love are spoken about and practiced. One is the quality of metta, or loving-kindness, and that is the quality um, of friendliness, of offering love and delight and uh, joy in love itself. It has a kind of, <coughs> not exactly celebratory, but it is a sweetness that you feel for people, that you want to cultivate and, and uh, develop. Compassion has a slightly different tone. It is, it is love as it appears in the face of suffering. Unlike metta, compassion is a response to suffering. So you're walking down the street and you, for some reason, you see some child or you see an old person, or you see somebody, it just evokes in you a feeling of compassion. The quivering of, of the heart as it feels suffering, of others or of oneself. Many years ago, I lived in Berkeley, and at that time there were, as there are now, I don't know why I'm saying at that time, there were many homeless people, but that was kind of a new event back in the late 70s, early 80s. There weren't, before that, believe it or not, there weren't so many homeless people, and then suddenly there all these homeless people began to appear, and I was just like, doing a lot of practice at the time, but I, I didn't know how to relate to homeless people. I was just so un, I was just so upset that they were homeless and they were suffering and I didn't know what to do, you know. So I, you know, like many people, I, I kind of ignored them. Then I talked to a friend of mine who was working in a homeless shelter and she said, well, of course you can't give them all money. No, you can't necessarily do that. You know, I'd be broke. But she said... You can say hello to them. You can be friendly. They want connection. They don't want to be treated as people who don't exist. They want to feel like people are there, even if they're not getting help, you know, solving their problems for them. So I started to do that. And oh my goodness, it made such a difference. It was such a small thing, but it really represented the friendliness I actually felt in my heart that I wanted to offer. It wasn't something that was far away at all. It was easy. So then there was this one homeless guy in the parking lot of the health food store, and we'd banter, you know, back and forth, and I'd see him a lot. Then I went away on a three-month course, and I came back, and I went shopping. The guy sees me. His face lights up, and he said, Where have you been? <laughs> He said, I was worried about you. I was like, oh my God. You know, suddenly there, was, there had been this relationship developing. That I, but how beautiful that we could be humans like that together. One time I heard a, a, a lecture by the great Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman. He's quite a talker. Have any of you ever heard him speak? Yes. He's quite a talker, very entertaining. 
but you expect big ideas from him, you know, kind of big concepts, and like he would be a great person to talk about not-self. You know, you could just spend hours talking about not-self. So one time he said, he said, it's pretty simple, compassion. He said, how do we know that we are meant to be compassionate, that we are inherently compassionate beings? He said, just look at your hands. So put your hands up, everyone. Look at your hands. He said, look at these hands. These hands are not claws. They're not meant to gouge and destroy and fight and, you know, kill people or beings or anything. He said, what are these hands made for? These human hands. I don't know if this is in your history, your evolutionary story, but the hands... (laughs) Hands are such an important part of being human. He said, these hands, feel how soft they are, how agile the fingers are. They used to be a little more agile, but (laughs) how much they can do, they can create, they can touch other people, they can be affectionate, they can help, they can heal. They're soft, they're meant to love and pat people. You know, they're not meant to be weapons. He said that is, a, an, ex, is an expression of our compassionate nature. It's, it's that close. Sometimes I like to see compassion is like, again, with the hands. Imagine your left hand gets cut. You cut it. Well, what does your right hand do? What does it do? Yeah, it goes right there. Your right hand doesn't stand over here and say, ah, too bad for you. No, it goes right to the hand, right? That's compassion. You see it everywhere. You know, there's a lot of suffering in the world. I don't need to point that out. But every, please notice, wherever there is suffering, there are people rushing in to help. There are, compassion is all over the place because it is that natural response of the heart when there is suffering. So when we are suffering, we we do this funny thing, and I see it, I've seen it in myself, I've seen it in students over the years. When we are suffering, we tend to think, what? I am the only one. What's wrong with me that I am suffering or everybody else sitting in here is clearly, you know, more enlightened than me or some version of that. We tend to not realize that when we are suffering, we can be pretty sure there's many others who are suffering in the same way. We may not know them, we may not see them, but human suffering is not something unique to each of us. It is a shared experience. And when we can remember that, and when we can offer not only ourselves a wish to be free of suffering, but we can also offer that wish to all others who are suffering as I am. May you be free. That can calm you down. I I know it's worked for me like that in my practice. If I can extend that wish for happiness, for peace, for freedom from fear, from freedom from suffering. 
it just has such a beautiful calming effect because I don't feel alone in my suffering anymore. So it is this offering of a kind of tender-hearted sweetness to ourselves. It's not pity for ourselves. It's not um, cheer up, you know, things will get better. It's a real meeting of just where we are. So I want to take you through a tiny little process which specifically addresses this need for self-care at times. Sometimes we are like um, a thirsty person in the desert or we are like a person who's ill that needs a particular medicine and we, we don't have it and so we just suffer. Compassion at times, if we find the right language, the right words, the right attitude, can feel like offering ourselves the medicine that we need to get well. You know, that quote I gave the other night that the Buddha said to the householder, though the body be sick, let not the mind be sick. Well, one of the ways that we heal the mind is by offering it this tender-hearted sweetness called compassion. Not feeling sorry for ourselves, but just wishing ourselves well. So here, you know, we have these phrases that we say when we do compassion practice. Um, May I be free from suffering. May I be well. Or may I be safe. Or it's okay. Or... I am healed, I am whole, or breathing in, I feel love, breathing out, I feel peace. We, it, it, it behooves each of us to spend a little time finding a word or a phrase that is like the medicine that we need, that our heart needs. It could just be one word. Maybe it's the word safe. Or maybe it's the word um, peace. Or maybe it's the word courage. Just one word that's like a, a little whisper in your, into your ear that's reminding you that you're okay. Basically, you're fine. You're, you're, you're okay and that somebody hears you. Somebody sees you. Somebody cares for your well-being. So take a moment to close your eyes, and I want to take you through a tiny little guided meditation on this. This is like writing yourself a prescription for the medicine that you need to heal your own heart. If you already have a loving-kindness practice or a compassion practice, you may already have a phrase that you work with. If you have not done this practice, think of what word really is comforting to you 
Is it safety? Is it courage? Is it love? Is it peace? Is it I'm okay? Or it's okay? Or is it acceptance? I accept myself as I am. Or I love myself just as I am. Begin to sense a word or a phrase that goes right into your heart. you can open your eyes so i would i would recommend just continuing with this on retreat outside of retreat in a regular way using a phrase or a word that reminds you of what it is your heart most yearns for and what it is that is like medicine that is like a healing balm for your heart So that is one way to work with compassion. Another way that we work and compassion develops quite spontaneously um, is in the way that we practice with mindfulness here. We could call mindfulness in some ways loving attention. We often point out that mindfulness is non-judgmental. It's not there judging us and criticizing us, it's allowing us to feel the truth of just what's here. And when we give our full attention to anything, it is a kind of love. Just as when we do love someone, we want to give them our attention. We find everything about them just so very interesting that we're just happy to pour our attention on them. So this Connection between attention and love is natural. When we love somebody, we give attention. When we pay attention, love arises. Who knows this better than Mary Oliver? She says, there is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to it long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is something, I haven't found it yet. Henry Miller, the painter, said, I remember well the transformation which took place in me when first I began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things now became an unending source of wonder, and with the wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chip cup, whatever came to hand, I looked upon as if I had never seen it before. Joanna Macy The Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic. To pay attention to anything, you find love arising for whatever it is. When you put your attention on it, it reveals itself to you. So that quality of love is inherent in our mindfulness practice. And this is inevitable. You can't practice mindfulness without this quality of love eventually surfacing, but it helps to make it explicit. 
So I think these practices will definitely help us as we go forward in our journey into old age. We don't know what the future will hold, but I can guarantee you that any of these practices that you cultivate now and feel connected to and feel familiar with will definitely help you in whatever life circumstance you find yourself in. It is a great mystery what happens near the end of life, the end of this incarnation. All kinds of things can happen, and they're not all terrible. Um, I read this about a man who had ALS. He was a writer, so he had been a writer all his life. He got ALS, and... This is what he wrote. As my muscles weakened, my writing became stronger. As I slowly lost my speech, I found my voice. As I diminished, I grew. As I lost so much, I finally found myself. Who could have imagined that? I'm sure he couldn't have imagined it even. And I want to close with one more poem. There's so many pieces I'd like to share with you, but time is doing its thing. So let me read this this poem by uh, Szyszla Milos that he wrote at the age of 94. 94. So you just don't know. Anyway, this is what he wrote. In advanced age, my health worsening, I woke up in the middle of the night and experienced a feeling of happiness so intense and perfect that in all my life I had only felt its premonition. And there was no reason for it. It didn't obliterate the past which I carried together with my grief. All of it was suddenly included, was a necessary part of the whole as if a voice were repeating, you can stop worrying now. Everything happened just as it had to. You did what was assigned to you, and you are not required anymore to think of what happened so long ago. The peace I felt was a closing of accounts and was connected with the thought of death. The happiness on this side was like an announcement of the other side. I realized that this was an undeserved gift and I could not grasp by what grace it was bestowed upon me. We don't know what experiences will come, but with a practice, with loving awareness, we might be very happily surprised. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.